Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in February 2021. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. Clarinetist Nicole Van Bruggen is co-artistic director of the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra. As you can imagine from such a role, she's a leader in the art of historically informed performance and has performed extensively with some of Europe and Australia's finest period instrument ensembles, including Concerto Copenhagen, the Netherlands Bach Society and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. And Nicole Van Bruggen joins me in conversation today. Nicole, a very warm welcome to Fine Music Sydney. Thanks for having me, Simon. Now, we were originally hoping to record this interview a few weeks back, but, um, well, let's just say some border closures got in the way because you're currently based in Queensland. That's right. Tell me about how the last year's treated you. Gosh, well, it's been a whirlwind, of course. We had plans afoot to tour with the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra and all of our education programs were were was were set to happen. I was also personally going to go on a family holiday in Europe uh, through Germany and uh, Austria and then on to Greece with my with my children and my husband. Uh, and I was also invited to play in an opera program in um, Copenhagen as well for an opera season there. So yeah, within the period of about one week, everything just went up in smoke and um, that was the end of that. So since then, though, actually feel like I've never worked harder uh, because I was quite adamant that I wanted Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra to come out of the other end of this shining. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think everything that we usually do to keep the orchestra running was just three times more difficult and three times more work to make all of the plans and the contingencies and the various scenarios. And it's been a massive period of time, actually. So I think I only sat still for a couple of weeks to kind of mourn what I'd lost Mm. and then got straight to work to get the rest on up and running again. Did you effectively just have to ditch an entire year of programming and it's just gone and you're not coming back to it? Or are you able to now come back to it in this year? Well, it was, yeah, it was very surreal, actually. So, um, I mean, I think everyone experienced that same sense of <laughs> this, this can't really be happening. But, yeah, we tried not to use the word cancel at all. Mm. Uh, we just kept using the word postpone. Uh, for a long time. But, you know, when it comes to planning arts projects and things, there are so many factors that go into putting together a program. So originally we thought we'll just get everything that we were going to do in 2020 and we'll just move it into 2021. But that it doesn't quite work. It like doesn't that. really yeah. work that way. You've got the musicians and the soloists and the directors and the and the well the festivals that have invited us and mm. there's so many factors um, which come together. So even though we tried to pick it up and move it forward, it didn't exactly happen like that. Uh, although we we do have those 
programs that were planned for 2020. I mean, we've got the scores, we've got all the parts copied, we've got everything printed, everything's marked up, it's all ready to go out to the musicians, like everything's ready. So those pieces will come back mm. to our programming. Just maybe not uh, in the order that they were originally just, started. Yeah, yeah. It all, it's all there in the library ready to be posted out. So mm. it's, uh, it's, uh, it'll, it'll not happen. Not wasted. Good, no. good. Now, the term historically informed performance is bandied around quite a bit, uh, particularly of late, I think. Can, can you explore for us what it means to you and aren't all sort of performances of uh, historic music to some extent historically informed? Yes, good questions. Um, answer to the last question is I don't think so. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, what makes something truly historically informed? Then, yeah, I suppose, right. Is the question. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, there are really two facets to playing historically informed performance or hip, as we call it now these days. Um, it used to be called early music, uh, but uh. That, that term morphed into historically informed performance because not everything that we do within the genre of hip is early so it's a it's it's a broader um, terminology now that we use so uh, I was talking about the two facets so the first facet is that we perform on period instruments which is I think the most obvious one that people see when they see us on stage and they think that's not what a flute looks like or a clarinet looks like usually so that's that's the most obvious visual um, for the audience well you can see why a flute's actually a woodwind well that's right exactly <laughs> exactly uh, and the other facet which for me is actually much more important is researching the the language of performance from each period so uh, it's starting back with Bach, which is before my um, specialty area because I'm a clarinetist. Uh, how did Bach hear that music when he was performing it? Then how did Mozart hear it? How did Brahms hear it? And even how did composers from the earliest 20th century, how did they hear that music when they were writing it? So we know a lot um, from all kinds of research uh, sources, what they were experiencing at that time. Are you saying how they heard it just because of the, the state of the instruments in those days or are there other factors as well? Oh, there's other factors. Mm. So the actual interpretation of the music and the meaning of the markings on the paper, so the notation of music, it's like speaking a foreign language with an accent or speaking it fluently. Mm. So the markings on the paper changed interpretations over 300 years. Mm. Um, so the way that I read the marking of a slur or legato, which means to not articulate the note or to play smoothly mm. in music today, that's what we teach the young kids in their Amy B exams or whatever they're doing. <laughs> uh, don't articulate, just slur, that's yeah. it. That's what it means. But actually it meant something very different in the 18th century. It actually meant to diminuendo and to play the last oh. note of the slurred marking lighter than the first note. So if you do that and you learn how to do it fluently, it completely changes the nature of every phrase that you mm. play. But that's sort of the lightness of, uh, of a Mozart performance in some respect. Mm. You get that da-da, 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 da-da exactly type it. of effect. That's exactly You'll it. You'll forgive my singing there, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Yeah, because I mean, I, I remember, you know, learning about if there was a, a grace note, taking it to a very basic level, the grace note being a different length, depending on, you know, whether it takes half the value of the note after or whether it's just a sort of a... Exactly. A and whether it's on mm. the beat or whether mm. it's before the beat or whether we squash it into the note or whether we elongate it, whether it's half the value, whether it's sometimes two thirds of the value. So it mm. all changed according to which composer, which period, even which city they were writing in at the time. It, the, oh, right. So yes. it's even that specific. It's very specific. Throughout the 20th century, what happened with the advent of recording and CDs and, and LPs and things before that was that everything got evened out so that so that 
it could be recorded successfully. And there's definitely a train of thought that's carried through, um, which which sort of evens out all of the phrasing and shaping so that it's easier to record. Now, I don't mean that everybody does that, of course, mm. on modern instruments. There are very many expressive and musical and even HIP-influenced modern instrument musicians these days but there's there is still a thread of of performance which is much more evened out let's say than the 18th century or 19th century way of performance well i think we have to hear some music before we go too much further because this is getting yeah. far too fascinating it's really difficult to explain without without examples so well, <laughs> for example we're about to hear some beethoven this is your first choice um it's a bit of the seventh symphony which is a great one of course but why would you like us to hear this particular movement from this particular symphony yeah well there's a few different reasons why i um suggested this one simon the, the first one is purely personal. So Beethoven 7 was the last piece of music that I performed before lockdown in March 2020. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's, it's of course, also one of the most incredible pieces um, written. The slow movement of Beethoven 7 is just really the, one of the most spectacular pieces of music, I believe. So there's, there's, there's that. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just, it, it stayed in my mind really since March because you perform it and you're so moved by it. And that was the last time that I performed for an audience um, I haven't played for an audience since then and the reason I asked you to play this particular recording is because this orchestra which we're about to play um, was hugely influential in my life and in my decision to even go into historically informed performance in the beginning.
the slow movement from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony in A. Quite a beautiful piece of music and awesomely played there by the Orchestra of the 18th Century under Franz Bruggen. That was the first choice of my guest in conversation today, the co-artistic director of the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra, clarinetist Nicole Van Bruggen. Now, Nicole, you said going into that piece that uh, this orchestra and this performance is partly why you got into hip. So can we explore that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I was studying modern clarinet at the Sydney Conservatorium uh, in the early 90s, as a student, I went to join in an Australian Youth Orchestra education program. And uh, they had actually invited the woodwind members from the orchestra of the 18th century to come and tutor us. Uh, And so I was on my modern clarinet and I had heard of the period instruments before, but it was really quite new to me. Uh, And I did this workshop with these woodwind instrument uh, educators and performers. And I was just so inspired and also incredibly blown away by the sound colors that they could make by their instruments. Uh, And it was really an immediate love. I just thought that is what I'm going to do. I think I was also at a really opportune time because I was, I think I was in my second year at the con and I was thinking, okay, you know, I can play the clarinet. Mm. Yep, that's fine. But what am I going to do with this? That's, it's not enough just to be able to play the clarinet. You have to know what you want to do. And I, I was asking myself, am I on the right track? Is this where I'm going? I wasn't sure. But the moment I heard those instruments being played and I talked to these musicians about what was happening in Europe in the early music scene, as it was known then, uh, I just thought, yep, that's that's my calling. That's where I'm going. I'd like to go back to Arco now. It was founded, of course, by Richard Gill Mm -hmm. um, not that long ago, not long before he, he passed away, sadly. So what was his mission in forming the orchestra? Well, what happened was that Richard was um, conducting a Victorian opera program uh, in 2012 and Rachel Beasley and I were performing um, in that orchestra with him at the time. Uh, and Richard had always had a passion for period instruments and we were, we were performing in Victorian opera on our, on our period instruments in a, in a sort of uh, in a, in a early music orchestra, which had been put together for the program. And he came to Rachel and I after we'd done an education program together, actually, as part of that Victorian opera season. And uh, we just clicked so well, the three of us. And I think Rachel had mentioned to Richard in passing in the hallway that I had experience with running an orchestra and managing music ensembles. So he pulled us into his office, uh, (laughs) actually in the interval or something crazy, and said to us, we are going to start a new orchestra. In the 20 minutes now. This is, yeah, he said, well, he just, he loved the sound of the classical instruments and the orchestra. And he was always extremely enthusiastic about historically informed performance. Um, And everyone knows how incredibly knowledgeable he was on on so many topics. So, um, yeah, and I was a bit reticent at first because I thought, wow, starting a new orchestra is like, it's really hard. <laughs> I, I suspect it and, is. Um, but then with, with someone like Richard um, with you, alongside you, yeah. you know, it, it, so many things became possible. So we started it together. because yes, that would have opened a fair few doors, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. To be fair. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. If it wasn't for Richard, then there's, then we would not be where we are now. He didn't want to create something where he was the main figure mm. and we were just his orchestra. Um, he was very adamant that it, he wanted it to be for all of the musicians and for all of us. And so that is something that we, we're we very, um, we, we keep that in mind all the time. This orchestra is for the good of the music, the good of the musicians. Mm. Uh, it's 
it's it's more I don't know out of love. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yes. Well, it always is, isn't it? It then? is. <laughs> it is to some extent, <laughs> but you know, you see so often that there, that there's that it, everything hangs from one person, yeah. and we and we we don't want that. We never wanted it from the beginning. So, and I think that that was very wise of Richard as well, because you know, it it did mean that when he when he passed in 2018. It didn't just mean that everything just fell apart. Mm. We had set it up in a way that we we could continue and continue to grow even when he's not with us. Well, that's interesting. You talk about the sort of the joint effort because I'm curious to understand how the co-direction works with mm. yourself and Rachel. Is that part of your ideal of it not being reliant on just the one person? Rachel and I complement each other um, really excellently. So I live in Queensland and she lives in Melbourne. So we've and always here you are in Sydney, so. and that's right. And we've always worked remotely. So. COVID was no change to that, even though many people had to sort of rethink about how they were going to work. Uh, we had always done it that way. So there was no difference for us, which meant we didn't have to get over that hurdle. We could just keep going. We both have um, our own artistic ideas and we've known each other for a long time. So we can, we, we of course, we bang heads on artistic ideas. You, you'd be crazy if you didn't when, you, when you're really discussing um, that kind of thing, which you feel passionate about. Uh, but we always manage to find a way to, to find a middle road or that sometimes Rachel gets her way, sometimes I get my way. <laughs> <laughs> now, how is that determined? Do you just draw straws or is it your turn? I think it just becomes obvious. You know, we, we, we talk it through until, yes. until it's... You realise one of you is more passionate than the other. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Or it just becomes clear that the, that the reasoning behind one of ideas has more, more substance. Mm. And, and, and we, we always find a way. As well as the co-artistic director, I'm also the general manager. Mm. So when it comes to anything to do with sort of logistics and money and, and the business side of stuff, that's clearly my department. Moving and, musicians around the country in a pandemic, for instance. Yeah, exactly, exactly <laughs> that. And, and Rachel is, um, she knows exactly what needs to happen behind the, the scenes. And so we, we just... We just bounce off each other excellently. It's always been that way. So When I think of HIP, um, and it's probably because, as you said before, HIP was originally called early music, mm-hmm. uh, I think of Baroque, early classical. I think of the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, you know, mm-hmm. it's all classical, mm-hmm. uh, early Baroque and classical. Whereas, of course, you've got the word romantic in the title of your orchestra. Now, you, you touched on this earlier about it's historically informed regardless in some respects of what era I just want to dive into that a little bit more in terms of when early music stopped being just early and the hip phenomenon incorporating romantic and beyond. Well, I mean, the the whole concept of sort of early music, which started in the 1960s, 1970s in the States and in, and in Belgium and Holland, uh, that was definitely looking back to the early the early side of, of things. So Baroque and even pre-Baroque, so Renaissance music and medieval music, things like that. Um, and really what happened was that the concept of of studying and research and researching that style of performance it just has evolved as well as music itself evolving mm. so uh by the time i got to holland um to study in the in the mid 1990s there was like the orchestra of the 18th century and other orchestras like um anna Turner brucher and uh, orchestra of the age of enlightenment in in the uk these orchestras were well and truly entrenched doing classical music at that style and then more and more research was done into the romantic period so really in australia we're we're a little bit behind with that thinking in europe they've been playing romantic music and they even play stravinsky and and uh, Raphael wow. and everything on on period instruments let's call them which is just sort of the instrument which was as it was invented at the, at that time so before it evolved into the 
2021 version of the instrument. But that's fascinating because I didn't think that there'd have been any amendments to the way violins, etc., are made since Stravinsky's time, certainly, and oh, maybe well, even since the late 19th century. Well, it depends which instrument you're talking about. Right. So the, the violins as a whole haven't really changed shape that much. The strings that they use have changed. Uh, the tension that they use on the strings has changed. The sound that can be produced mm. by much tighter strings has evolved. But for the string players, it's much more about the bow than, than the strings. So the shape of the bow changes and, and string players will have various bows according to which period of music they're playing. Um, so that's, but it's particularly the, the woodwind and, and a, to some mm. extent the brass as well. Uh, that's where you see the biggest, the biggest changes. And in fact, you know, there's still new clarinets being built every few years. There's still more adaptations coming now. So the clarinet is still changing. What are they doing <clears throat> to it to quote unquote improve it? Yeah, they're they're adding more keys. Um, that's you know, in a nutshell, sort of basic right. explanation. That they do other things. They change the bore. They change the the, the shape of the mouthpiece mm. and things like that. But they they add more keys, which gives more homogeneity across all notes, across all registers. Right. <clears throat> and that is the the at this time and really since the last 50, 60 years, that's the main aim. Let's get all the woodwind instruments to sound homogenous across the entire range. But for me, that's the most massive difference because mm. in the 19th century and, and particularly in the 18th century, every single note on the instrument had a different tone colour. So the, the composers knew exactly what tone colour they were going to get when they asked a clarinet player to play an E-flat then they knew they were going to get this gorgeous dark sound. Um, and if you play an E-flat on a modern clarinet, it sounds it's exactly e <laughs> the same as every other note in terms of tone colour. How fascinating. Mm. A modern piano is, is, again, much more even than a forte piano, where it was designed that the lower notes would have a different colour to the higher notes. So Mozart's father, I think it was, uh, Leopold Mozart, he actually wrote that the piano should sound like a bassoon in the bass, an oboe in the middle and a flute at the top. So they actually, the best forte pianos were built to imitate the different tone colours of the different instruments. Hmm. So that was their intention at the time. And it's very different to a, a piano now where you just want the piano to sound like a piano. Yeah. We have... Um Nick Rustiniello, the uh, saxophonist, uh, appearing as part of your musical discovery series. Firstly, what what are you doing with the musical discovery series? Because it is a sort of a public concert, isn't it? It's not just <clears throat> oh, a, a private educational series. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an it is an education program. Mm. So I try to avoid using the word concert because we don't perform in the way that one would expect from an inverted commas concert. Uh, it's definitely, uh, it's, it was originally a concept of Richard's. Um, it's called The Voyage of Musical Discovery. And we, we um, choose a different area of composition and we dissect the music and we look inside the music. How did the composer use for example, the one we're, we're doing yeah, this week is called motivic development. So how did the composer use motives? How did they develop the motive to create this entire work? Uh, and that, that's an example. But we have different topics. We look at texture. We look at timbre of music. How did the composer compose this? And it we also guide the, the audience um, as to what kinds of things to listen to. when you're, If you want to listen to a brand new piece of music, it doesn't have to be the one we're dissecting. You can take that information and put it with any piece of music that you listen. But listen to the, the smallest element, for example, the motive, and understand 
or or be aware of what the composer has done to develop that into an entire symphony, for example. Mm. So it's uh, it's really education based. We do perform the whole movement as well as part of it a couple of times, and once at the beginning, and then we break it down and we explain all the bits and pieces, and then we play it again. And the idea, what we hope to have achieved, is that everyone who listens to it again at the end goes, "Aha! Now oh, I'm now hearing I get that, that. Yeah. in a totally different way." So, Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome, yes, because I didn't um, think the saxophone was a, a part of a, a classical orchestra, but I suppose it is. Well, what we're trying to do with the Voyage series is also draw um, draw a line between the past and the present. So it's the construction of music has not changed. Mm. We still, when we're looking at 21st century composers who are writing music right now, they're still using the same building blocks. No matter what style of music they play in, they must have a motive, they must have an idea that must be developed to create a work. Uh, so there are there are definite sort of uh, common threads that run through the, the, the creation of music. So uh, when when it comes to the to the students who come and also to the audience, it, it's sort of helping everyone to understand that that all music is is created in the same way, whether it's from then or from now. Mm. Well, I think we have to have a little bit more music uh, before we get any further into this. Uh, you've got some Hummel for us, uh, Nicole. What have you got? I have the Hummel Clarinet Quartet, which is uh, perhaps not a really well-known work, but um, but definitely a highlight of the clarinet uh, chamber music repertoire from the early 19th century.
The Allegro Moderato movement from Hummel's Quartet in E-flat major, performed by Quartet Andre. And that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Nicole Van Bruggen, co-artistic director with the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra. So, Nicole, uh, why did we want to hear this and uh, why did we want to hear Quartet Andre? Well, Quartet Andre sounds like a blast from the past for me. Uh, that was the, really, I think, the first chamber music ensemble I ever formed. Um, I was always quite entrepreneurial and, and organized when it came to putting together groups. Right. You know, so, uh, so Quartet Andre was formed while I was studying um, at the Conservatorium in The Hague in Holland. When I finished my Bachelor of Music at the Sydney Conservatorium on Modern Clarinet, I moved to Holland and I did my master's in historically informed performance on historical clarinet in The Hague at the Royal Conservatorium. And I formed Quartet André as part of my studies there and I used that ensemble for my final exam, for example. So most importantly, the violinist from Quartet André was Rachel Beasley, Uh. my my now co-artistic director (laughs) of ACO. So uh, Rachel and I studied in The Hague at the same time. Uh, she played in my final exam. I played in her final exam, uh, and uh, yeah, we—that's where we—that's where we met. Actually, even though we were both from Australia, we never crossed paths here. We yeah. met. We met in Holland. It's interesting, actually, just touching on that. You know, you played in her exam, and she played in yours. You, you're being examined separately, and and you just bring in the other musicians as kind of the support to your yeah. performance. Yeah, so, so you you're don't... obviously you're not playing the same repertoire for each exam. No, 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 mm. no. And and uh, it's very chamber music based. So you you um, build ensembles with your co-students mm. and, and everyone chooses their own repertoire and then you ask your students, oh, could you please play in my exam? Could you please play in my exam? It's actually a really great idea because you end up having lessons with all the teachers. So I would go to Rachel's violin lessons oh. with her violin teacher to rehearse her piece for her exam, but we would all be learning all the time yeah. so you just get um, the more exams you get invited to play in the more lessons you get with all the teachers so it's a, it's a fantastic format yeah it is so obviously things went well for playing with uh, Rachel yeah. Beasley uh, in that so did you kind of just the two of you just know from the get-go that you clicked I think so. I think so. I mean, we've because of our sort of life paths, we've sort of since those days, we've we've gone off and done our own different things and come back together. But we did keep crossing paths uh, in orchestras in in Europe all the time, and we always knew each other and we socialised together with this sort of Australian, you know, expat Australian thing, yeah. expat thing. And, mm. and and so yeah, we just we were just always with each other. We got along, and it wasn't really, I think, though, until we both came together in two thousand twelve in Australia again oh. that we thought. Yeah, let's let's really connect now and and do something together. So, but with all that history by then, mm. you can you can really trust each other, I guess. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's mm. a, there's a huge trust, and and also we've we've even though like I said, we we followed our own separate paths in Europe um, with our careers there. They were similar you mm. know so we we've yeah. we've worked in the same places we know all the same people we've we uh, <laughs> have performed music in the same language in the same style um at the same time as it's evolved in europe so we yeah we have all that in common yeah so going to the netherlands to study the historical clarinet having had that insp- inspirational moment at uh, the sydney conservatorium with the, those players uh, what was it like transitioning from the modern clarinet to the historical clarinet? Is there a jump or is it literally just picking up another instrument and within half an hour you kind of vaguely know your way around it? Oh, that would have been really nice. Uh, no, it takes ages. It takes it. So, so I mean, it's, it's almost like it's a completely different instrument? It is. I mean, you can 
pick it up and make a sound. I mean, I, 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 I hear... <laughs> I'm sure I can pick it up and make a sound. I hear clarinet players. I mean, I have a lot of modern clarinet players pick them up and they can make a sound. But uh, it's a, it is a completely different fingering system. So if you uh, also have a history of recorder, that would help because it's sort of halfway between recorder and clarinet, the fingering system. So that took me a long time to master because I didn't play recorder. <laughs> um, and, yeah, there's, there's a thing called cross fingerings where you have to be able to alternate your fingers back and forth very quickly and, and nimbly. That doesn't exist on the clarinet. Mm. So um, there was definite techniques which I had to practice a lot. Uh, but just, I don't know, I, I was young. Even the, the concept of tying my reed onto my mouthpiece with a piece of string, uh. which is how I do it now, that takes me... 10 seconds now but it, I remember for my first clarinet lessons I actually had to turn up 15 minutes early so I could time my read on properly before I could go into my lesson because it took me that long to get it right <laughs> but um, I remember when I first moved to Holland my teacher uh, Eric Hulbrich who was who was from the orchestra of the 18th century um, he he took a long time unpacking my modern clarinet sound and trying to get me to let go of everything that I'd learned in terms of what is a clarinet supposed to sound like uh, because uh, it's a much lighter sound and a much it's a it's a very different way of producing sound so he had the benefit of becoming he was he became a clarinet player after being a recorder player first so he actually followed uh, chronologically if you like what the clarinet players from the 18th century would have followed so mm. first baroque and then discover the clarinet but anyone who's going from a modern clarinet back to the early clarinet we actually have to spend a lot of time unlearning the things that have become automatic for us to mm. be able to create a classical clarinet sound uh, which sounds more like one from the 18th century. Well, well, well we think. Yeah. We think. <laughs> but it, there's a whole family of instruments that you play or that you're mm. required mm -hmm. to play. Mm -hmm. The Chalamot, mm -hmm. or is this just is the Chalamot just a, 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 a historical clarinet? Uh, no, no. It's a, it's I, a I see that again. as a different instrument. It yeah. has a reed, but it's much cl much closer related to the recorder. Right. Yeah. Every time I hear the word Chalamot, I think of my sixth grade musicianship exams ah. with um, the Chalamot register. Yeah. And now I was the forerunner of the clarinet. And da, 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 da. But tell us about that instrument as a different one. Yeah, so, well, there are four different Chalamot. There's a bass, tenor, alto and soprano, each in a different key. Uh, and they only play in about a, an octave and a half and they only play diatonic notes. So they're, they're, very, um, they're very specific instruments and the composers who loved them and used them a lot, uh, Telemann, Vivaldi used them, um, Graupner. I don't know if you've ever played no, much Graupner on the radio. A, that's a new one on me. I have to He's, look him up. He was incredibly prolific uh, and he loved the Chalamot. And oh. he has Chalamot in almost every one of his cantatas and there's like hundreds of them. So, uh, so uh, those kinds of composers loved it and they knew exactly how to use the Chalamot. We're very often used in pastoral kind of themes because of the tone colour. Uh, Gluck famously used the um, Chalamot in Orfeo and Eurydice. Uh, and I, I did a, I once did a Orfeo season where I had to walk out onto a rock on the stage and play my Chalamot solo to the, to the stars. It was very pastoral. And, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so it was, it was a really um, very 
fashionable instrument in the mm. Baroque period because it was one of those quirky ones, the new the new experiment. Um, and it was, yeah, really used in that way as well. But, but with only an octave and a half or so of range, that's uh, that's not very many notes, is it? No, it's not. But it's incredible what people like what Vivaldi and Telemann can do with that yeah. amount of notes. I mean, it's, it can be, it's, it's, it's virtuosic like a, like a recorder. Mm. So you can move your fingers around it very quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good fun to play the Shalomo. There are definitely not enough Shalomo gigs in Australia, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I suspect there aren't. Well, you're, you're, you're in charge of an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's Baroque. Huh? We don't do Baroque. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can throw one in. Uh, I'll so, talk to Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, the clarinet for you, why the clarinet originally? When did you, why did you start learning the clarinet? Oh, this is such a very unromantic story. So I was... I was in a primary school uh, on the North Shore in Sydney and uh, I was new to the school. Everyone played an instrument at this school and I was taken into the band room and said, you can choose an instrument, but I, because I was new to the school, I had no idea even what instruments existed and I didn't know. And then they just said, here's a clarinet in the back of the cupboard, you get this. And that was it. <laughs> so I know so many musicians have these wonderful stories about how they fell in love with this and that, but I just got it put in my hands and I, I took it home and worked it out. And after, I think it was even within the first year, my band um, teacher rang my mum and said she she can do this. You, you need to um you need to do something. Do it properly. And yeah. mum had no idea because she we're not a musical family. Oh. Um and mum said well what do I do? Where do I go? And so the band teacher looked it up and found found the right teachers for me. And she used to drive me every Saturday all across Sydney mm. to have lessons with the right people. But even from the age of eight. Um, my band, thank, thankfully, my band teacher raised the flag and said, this girl, you know, yeah. needs, needs, needs attention. So um, I'm very lucky, really, to <laughs> that, have had that. <laughs> but the story of getting it out of the back of the cupboard, basically, I thought, I thought that's how people end up playing the viola. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Uh, but... So you didn't come from a musical family. Um, obviously, you had a very supportive mother who was driving you all over Sydney, so that that's excellent. Mm. But when it was starting to become or look like it was going to become your career mm. rather than just something you're quite good at, mm. uh, what sort of support did you get from them, from your family? Did, would, were they worried that this was not going to be a real career? Um, well, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, my dad, um, my, my parents were divorced, so um, I didn't really grow up with dad seeing me playing all the time. Um, I lived with mum. Uh, so she just, yeah, like I said, she just followed the advice of my teachers the whole mm. way through. And dad was very aware that I was, uh, that I had a, a yeah, I was bright. So uh, even, you know, at, at, I was ducks of my of my school and mm. and dad was like, why, why? He just didn't understand. Why would you not go and study medicine or law yeah. or something? And I was like, I don't know. I just don't want to. I only want to do music. That's what I want to do. Um, and yeah, they just really, mum never tried to convince me otherwise. Mm. Um, dad was perplexed by it. Um, he was a chemist. So uh, yeah, he, 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 he had other things in mind, but <laughs> I was adamant. And I actually had already decided I remember that I used to say already in primary school I'm going to be a clarinet player when I grow up mm. and um, I just knew and um, yeah I never wavered and I never even thought that I would do anything else it never crossed my mind mm. Mm. well I think the proof in the pudding is you're playing <laughs> and you. we're about to hear some of it uh, with a little bit of Mozart that uh, you've got for us uh, what's this next one Nicole 
Uh, I think we're about to hear the Kegelstadt Trio, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. So um, the Kegelstadt Trio is just, it's such a beautiful, intimate chamber music piece for clarinet, viola and forte piano on this recording. Uh, and yeah, it's it, Mozart, of course, absolutely loved the clarinet. Uh, he became great friends with Anton Stadler, a very, very famous clarinet player. Um, they were best friends in Vienna. And, and I think that that friendship really led Mozart to write some of the most spectacular music late in his life.
just a part of Mozart's Kegelstadt trio. The violist was Jane Rogers, the forte piano played by Annika Feinhoff, and the clarinetist was my guest in conversation today, clarinetist and co-artistic director of the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra, Nicole Van Bruggen. Now, Nicole, I see that you uh, recorded this um, not long before leaving Holland to return to Australia. What made you come back? Ah, family, really. I came back not for work reasons because I was having an excellent career in Europe and having a great time. Um, but I had I have two children yeah. uh, and they were young. And in my mind, before I had children, you, of course, your whole life changes when you have – everything changes. You can't imagine that's going to happen, but it does. And, and before I had children, I thought, well, I'm going to have this career in Europe mm. and then when I retire – I'm going to move back to Australia with my husband and we're going to retire on the beach. That was the idea. Uh, then I had children and then I realized as they started to you know, go to school and grow up, they were Dutch, very Dutch. And I thought, if I retire and move back to Australia, I will be leaving behind my Dutch adult children and potentially you know who knows, but maybe my grandchildren. And then at that moment, I realized I wouldn't, I won't do that. So then I thought, I have two choices. I either decide to stay in Holland forever or I go right now while my children can still, uh, you know, adapt become easily, Australian. become Australian. Mm. And they were young enough to, you know, not have their schooling affected. Um, it's a huge move. Mm. Um, and they, they did speak uh well, my son didn't speak any English, but he understood wow. he understood everything because I already I always spoke to him in English, but we spoke Dutch uh, most of the time at home. So uh, my daughter was bilingual, but still young. So I just thought I'll just yeah I I wouldn't have wanted to do that too much later because mm. uh, I wanted to give them the best chance, of mm. course. So yeah, that was it. It was it became a sort of now or never yeah. um, decision. But I have to say that it, it took me a good three years in Holland to get my head completely around that to leave everything that I'd built up in Europe because yeah it's 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 you can live in Europe and come back to Australia and lots of people do that um, and and still play here and be part of the Australian scene while living in Europe mm. but to actually move completely is was it was a huge step so yeah, um, and be based here rather than there yeah it's, mm. it's harder the other way around it's harder to live here and keep your career going in Europe but you still go back. I do. Pre-COVID, you're still going back to... Pre-COVID, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have very loyal orchestras um, where I used to play in Europe, where I still play, um, and they still invite me, you know, despite, you know, all of the extra stuff that they have to organise for me to be able to get there. So. Yeah. So how does that travel impact on your family, your young children? <laughs> Yeah, it's tricky. Well, I have them. I have an amazing husband, um, <laughs> who who is really supportive, and you know, he he just uh, he just takes over when I'm not there. Uh, and yeah, the, the kids are they've they've had it since day one. I think it's just part of being a, the child of a touring musician. Um, even when I was living in Europe, I was still I was still touring away a lot. Yeah. So so the, but there's a difference between going from Amsterdam to Berlin or even to New York yeah, compared yeah. to the other side of the world there is that's right well i don't go away anymore for those really long patches so i'd only go away for example i try to limit it at the moment to a say an opera season so it's very compact work i go there i do the few weeks of season then come back home again you don't then go on to the next thing no no i would if i if if you know when the kids my my daughter's doing year 12 at the moment so so you know it it won't be 
too much longer Before and they'll be uh, they'll be leaving home going and, and moving on with their lives. Well, that's and, what you think. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, I live in a regional area, so they'll have to because they need to go to the city to go to university and things. But, uh, yeah, but the, the, it, it's not so much longer and, and I feel like it's been a really good time for me to just to be home and, and be mostly working in Australia while they've had this really important, you know, teenage years and things. I'm, I'm definitely there for them. And she's going to be emailing me her maths assignment tonight for me to, you know, support her with while I'm here. Oh, we're good. very we're very used to doing that remotely. So. so those good marks that you were getting when you were a kid sort of are paying off. Yeah, now. that's it. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Half of it I can't remember anymore. But yeah, I try. Where I try. I think it's frightening sometimes finding out, uh, seeing what uh, the young kids are learning now compared to what we learned when we were going through school, it's like, it's oh, my gosh. phenomenal. Yeah, it's really very different world now. <laughs> but what about the sort of the, the gruelling schedule? Like, you're, you're practically that FIFO thing where, you know, you're flying all the way to Europe, you're doing the, the season and, you, and you're coming back, let's just let's just say. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you kind of chill, for want of a better word? Like, how do you, how can you switch off? Or is the whole thing work? To be honest, I, I'm really not very good at switching off. I don't really think I ever do it. I don't have a need just my personality type I thrive on running the whole time I live on the Sunshine Coast I live in Noosa so I I, I placed myself in this in this area of Australia where I'm (laughs) supposed yeah so I can go to the beach but I I don't sit still there I just I have to go in the water then I have to go for a walk and then I'm done and then I need to go home again so I'm not a lying about kind of person and I have a sun lounge and it's near the pool and I look at it I think I should take a book and go and sit there but I don't I'm just take scores I just start (laughs) yeah actually just go right on to the next project and I, I don't find a need to to do that I, do, I don't miss it either I'm yeah. I, I think my downtime perhaps is hanging out with my kids we, we laugh we play board games that kind of thing it's, it's different to having me time but I I don't um I don't crave that I'm I'm always on the go it's just me <laughs> goodness me <laughs> well there's one more bit of music we definitely need to play which sort of takes us back to where we started the conversation which is uh your next Arco performance which uh is coming up in a, in a couple of days uh tell us about this little fragment we're going to hear Ah, we're going to hear some of the Bruch uh, serenade on Swedish folk melodies. Uh, so yeah, this is this is beautiful late romantic string writing. It's uh, this program is is for the late romantic string orchestra. We've got work by Britten uh, and and Bruch and uh, Tchaikovsky as well. So like you were saying earlier, this this concept of historically informed performance, but pushing it right now in, into the 1930s. So the string players um, in our concert will be using fantastic late romantic string techniques, a totally different way of using vibrato, of, of using portamento, to, so sliding between one note and another, which was very much the fashion up until World War II. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's such luscious repertoire. It's a really great sound world for the strings. Thank you. 
the first movement of Bruch's Serenade on Swedish Folk Melodies, which you can hear performed by the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra as part of their next concert series. And the co-director of ARCO is with me in conversation today, clarinetist Nicole Van Bruggen. Now, Nicole, you mentioned uh, a composer, and I can't remember who it was now, sort of in one ear and out the other, earlier, which I'd never heard of. Part of your thing is to unearth these composers that uh, are, are otherwise forgotten. I want to know about how that happens. I have this sort of romantic notion that, you know, you're going through a dusty monastery library in the Italian Alps and you sort of open a drawer and this score falls out. But I suppose it's not quite like that, is it? Oh, you, it's exactly like that. Oh, wow. Actually, not, <laughs> not in the Italian Alps, but, um, uh, well, things have changed now, of course. But when I first moved to Europe in, in the mid-90s, we, we didn't have the internet then, uh, and I did go on tours around Europe and I went to castles. I went to the library in the museum in Prague, for example, which I think, actually got flooded um, later, like a few years later, 20 years later or something. But I I actually went into the library, went downstairs with the curator and he said, see that cupboard up the back there? No one's really ever looked in there before. (laughs) And and yeah, that that was the research at the time. That's how we did it. So um, I had a particular passion um, while I was studying uh, in in The Hague for clarinet quartets because I founded this Quartet André, which which we've just played earlier. Um, And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of works for clarinet and three string instruments uh it was incredibly popular especially in bohemia Mm. Um, when the clarinet was was really in in mode, in the, in the fashion, um, and uh, so I, I I went on a bit of a, a task to to go and fish out all of these quartets and played hundreds of them, and and you know I would say maybe ninety percent of them were were pretty bad. Oh really? really? Yeah, yeah. Like because the, the, they were. You're not supposed to say that. No, <laughs> well, but you have to play them to know that. So right. so everybody was writing for it, and not everybody were, was, that was good. fantastic composer. But within that, we did discover a really large amount of gems Hmm. Um, and I got to know all kinds of wacky wonderful composers that no one's ever heard of and some of them are really fantastic so some of them are clearly just written for you know an outdoor function or you know throw together a chain music piece for a party this Saturday night or something like that so Hmm. then not all of them are are written in a serious way but then there are ones that you come across that you think wow this one was for, for a real occasion and someone took time to write this one amazingly so I love that kind of thing. I just love treasure hunting and finding that repertoire. Some of them are not very good, uh, or many of them are not very good, mm-hmm. uh, but the ones that are good, why have they just been left on dusty shelves? I don't, there are many theories about that. I mean, we we've we have created this concept of the canon of composers mm. or the canon of repertoire, which is what we all know and we listen and we know it. We know that repertoire inside out. But uh, for the composers who who were a little bit, sometimes they were just forgotten because they didn't have anything quirky about them at the time you know Mozart was a bit of a party animal um, and he had this amazing father who dragged him all over Europe who you know put him in front of everybody so he became famous Beethoven had you know had all sorts of things going on as well which 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 made him unusual and and interesting and as well as that of course Mozart and Beethoven are are you know the masters um, but there were people composing at that time who in the 18th century were equally as respected and and Anton Ebel was became a pet project of mine he was one of those he was actually found 
at the time to be better than Beethoven as a composer. Considered in his day. Considered in his day. The and reviewers, the audiences, they they preferred Ebel to Beethoven. Because I, I confess I, I've never heard of him. Mm-hmm. Am I being completely ignorant or is no, that no. not unfair? <laughs> no, that's not unfair at all. No, yeah. I mean, yeah. he, he just disappeared into into oblivion really. And um, uh, I, I sort of felt like it was my task once I yeah, discovered absolutely. him to bring him back to life. He, he, did, he was an incredible pianist. So he wrote some very, very um, wonderful piano works. Um, he also loved the clarinet and he and he which was the fashion in Vienna at the time so he wrote really interesting chamber music for clarinet and things uh, he wrote symphonies he wrote overtures uh, he wrote all kinds of things and he's all of his music is really very high quality but I guess he wasn't as as extrovert as the guys around him at the time in Beit- in, in, in Vienna mm. uh, so he didn't sell himself effectively well he didn't enough. sell himself it's about mm. marketing it's about the publishers whether he, he, he had to have a good relationship with the publisher mm. to be able to get published and it's a really only those composers who managed to get published and pushed onto the market by the publishing companies. They're the ones we know about today. So there's lots of reasons uh, why composers got lost. And particularly, of course, I must mention all of the female composers yeah. uh, who were amazing and had absolutely no chance in that time. In and that they wouldn't time. have been published. And no, been, no. Yeah. Look at Louise Farenc. She's an incredible French composer. Mm. Uh, Chaminade, the, the, also a Parisian composer. I mean, these women were incredible, but... They just got lost in time just because of where the, the era that they lived in. So some of these dusty scores that you've dug out from Ebel and, and, and so on, are they like handwritten and literally effectively the only copy in existence? Uh, yes, yes. So the manuscripts are... Uh, they not I've, published, basically. They were never published. Well, the ones that I've recorded, I made my own edition of, and mm. they're published now through a publishing company in, in Amsterdam. Yeah, now, but... Now, yeah, yeah. but when I discovered them in the libraries, no, it was just the manuscripts. So uh, so we worked from the manuscript and we created our own, our, own, uh, our own parts and our own scores, and we worked from that, and then we rehearsed it, and then we... Um, then I eventually published it as well. So it's yeah, it's been a whole crusade of mine. I'm, I really feel for these composers who are forgotten for no yeah, good reason. For no good reason, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. We don't care about the dodgy ones. No, <laughs> and, and, and to be honest, it's part of like that was also yeah. something that Richard Gill loved as mm. well. He, he loved all that research and digging out the gems and he was also very well known for it. He loved to program things that not everybody else was playing. Uh, and we, we, we shared that passion when we, when we founded the orchestra and it was, it's one of our artistic aims to always be bringing either a composer that people don't know very well or at least a work by a well-known composer that doesn't get performed enough. So and and the Bruch Serenade uh, is is a good example of that as well. We we know Bruch for his violin concerto, but we don't all know his Serenade on Swedish Melodies. It's an excellent piece of music. Mm. Well, Nicole, I have to say we could talk all afternoon, and I think we practically have. But thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. It's been absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. It's been wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, Simon. Nicole van Bruggen, principal clarinet and co-director of the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra. Their first concert of the year is on in Newcastle on Thursday night and at the City Recital Hall Angel Plays Friday night. As we record this, we're crossing our fingers that the Melbourne concert can still go ahead. Such times we live in. That's In Conversation for today. Remember to subscribe to the podcast edition where sometimes extended versions of the program is also available and you can get that through your preferred podcast provider. And if you're a fan, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast site. It does help others find the show. I'm Simon Moore. This is Fine Music Sydney. And here's a bit of Ebel that Nicole was just talking about to take us out.
Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation.